welcome to this special episode of the Zero Alpha podcast. We have some special guests here, Lynette and Neil Silver, and also here we have our PR cadet members, Chelsea and Gus, and we're just going to have a chat about the amazing uh, experiences and work that Lynette and Neil have done. So Lynette, let's start with you. Um, you are one of the top Australian military history researchers, I believe, is that right? Oh, I'm known as the history detective, so I suppose that's some measure, yes. Um, I, I, I don't ever rank myself, but other people do. Okay. What sparked your original interest in researching Australian history? Um, I found papers relating to gold discovery in colonial history, which had been lost for 134 years, this back in the 1980s, and had been looked for, looked for by eminent historians, but no one had found them. Yeah. And um, I found them, they were, and that was my first book, was on gold discovery. And I discovered from other people that I, apparently I don't think like anybody else. Oh, okay. <laughs> what did that mean? Well, that means that my method of, of research is, is unorthodox. Okay. The way I go about it, which is how um, apparently I, I found all these papers when nobody else did, including Jeffrey Blaney. Looked for them for years and never found them. So I did a lot of lateral thinking and lo and behold, found everything. So where did you manage to find it then? They filed under somebody else's name in the colonial office in London. Oh. Did you have to travel over to no, London? No, no. We had a thing called the Australian Joint Copying Project, which was on microfilm. And um, fortunately, this paperwork had only just been done as part of that project about a week before I located where it was and uh, the film was sent out and I sat there in the Mitchell Library and read it. Was this all related to the Fool's Gold book? Yes. Okay. Yes, I to do with that. Fantastic. What drew you to researching particularly Australian military history? Uh, I started out being interested in the uh, clandestine raids on Singapore Harbour in 1943 and 1944 where small groups of commandos were infiltrated behind the lines, and um, that resulted in two books, uh, The Heroes of Rimau, and, uh, which was the name of the operation, and Cripe, the fishing boat that went to war, which was right. the little boat that took them. And from that, I developed a very big interest in the fall of Singapore, which is where the raids were carried out, and from that led on to prisoners of war. So it was really a, a process that went from one step to the other. What are the keys to being an investigative history researcher? Uh, you need to keep. You need to have a very inquiring mind. You need to keep an open mind. You don't take everything at face value, and you believe everything you read until you find somebody's lying. So it's a bit like being in a court of law. You need to examine the evidence. You need to dissociate yourself from the story. You can't have any emotional attachment or bias, which is why the stories I do, if I had somebody in my family involved, you could not possibly be objective. So you need to look at the whole story as a whole, both sides, and always keep an open mind. And, and if something doesn't add up, you then go and find out why it doesn't add up. And that's when you usually you, um, you crack whatever you're doing. So did you, uh, through high school or university, did you study history? Were you along these lines? How did you end up at this position? Um, I had a father who was absolutely mad on Australian history and every school holidays we would get in the car and we would follow in the footsteps of human hovel going the way they went. And uh, by the time I was out of primary school, I'd been pretty much oh, everywhere in New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia. And by the time I was in high school, we'd done over the rest of the country. Uh, back in 1961, we were out at Ayers Rock, and back when nobody climbed the rock, and 
when you did climb it, you wrote your name on a piece of paper in the screw top jar at the top, and my father and I were the only two there. Wow. So, so it was. Yes. So it was. Uh, it was. It was something that developed from him. He was mad on Australian history, and I also had extremely good teachers in primary school. When we did Australian history, they. They were so good that, you know, they'd tell the story of Kennedy or something and all the kids in the class would be crying, you know, when he was, when he died. So it, I think it was that that interested me. But I, I couldn't do it at high school because there were too many kids in the history class and they put me into geography, which um, was actually very good because I, I enjoy geography and you can learn history. You can learn it from books. Yeah, it's easy. Absolutely. Yeah. How did the idea to write a book on the Santa Can arise? Um... Goodness, there's a very long answer. I'll try and keep it short. Um, I met a lady whose relative's fate had been uncovered by me in my book, The Heroes of Remount, and she asked me, could I write a book on Sundakan? And I said, um, well, there's been a few couple of books written recently. They're fairly low level, but you just can't keep on recycling a story because you think you might do it better. And, uh, but she kept me in contact with me. She introduced me to um, two of the six survivors who were still alive. I became very friendly with them and I started to collect information and told her that if I found an aspect of the story that warranted an investigation, yes, I would look at it. And that aspect was the plan to rescue the prisoners of war. And one day in 1995, uh, after I collected a fair bit of information, I questioned the accepted story that the prisoners had not been rescued by paratroop team teams in 1945 because General MacArthur, who was in control of everything, the American general, had refused to supply the necessary aircraft. And I knew the Philippines had been retake, retaken, that he had 600 aircraft and we only needed 30, that he backed the plan from day one the whole year before, so why would he at the last minute pull the plug? And as I had a background in special operations and knew that there had been cover-ups at a high level when things had gone wrong behind the lines, like quite serious cover-ups, where the Japanese had gone free because um, people were not allowed to testify in court. And I thought, well, if the um, people at the top are willing to let Japanese war criminals go free to save their backsides, basically, what might happen if something had gone wrong at the secret level in Borneo? So I went chasing the secret operations files and lo and behold discovered in about a day or so looking that um, the intelligence being collected for the rescue had been completely messed up, incompetently done, terrible. And as a result, the rescue mission had been cancelled 10 days before it was to take place. Wow. Uh, that had all been, all that material had been removed from the files, that the original file had been filleted, uh, everything was missing, but I knew from experience that the army and the military never keep one copy of anything, and went into uh, lower level files where I found the intelligence reports coming in from the field, and uh, there was a decoded secret signal in there which said in April of 1945, we have reliable information that all prisoners of war have been moved from Sundakan camp to the west coast where they now are. We expect confirmation in a fortnight. So I knew they hadn't been moved. I knew that some had gone on the march, but most of them were still there. And in a fortnight, the uh, second message came through to say, we now confirm there is nobody at the Sundakan POW camp. Party leader requests bombing at earliest convenience. Mm -hmm. and at that point, we started to attack the camp, and that eventually forced the remaining prisoners and the Japanese to move into the interior, which created what we call the Second Death March. Um, uh, by the time they discovered the intelligence was wrong, 
completely wrong, because they were there, it was all too late. It was just too late to do anything about it. And we lost everybody. About a thousand people that could have been saved were lost. Wow. There are two things in there that you said that I wanted to pick up on. One, you said you have a background in special operations. Yes. Can you explain that? Oh, special operations Australia. That's the um, equivalent of SOE in uh, Europe in the Second World War. These are clandestine missions, highly secret. I suppose they'd be close to the SAS today, but no one was answerable to anybody except to General Blaney, who was at the top of the tree in Australia, and no government and no regular army person should ever know what these fellows were getting up to. It actually says that. They're at the, at the government and the army must be in a position at all times to deny everything. So this is secret undercover work and I had written two books on that subject so I knew how the system worked. And uh, that's why I became very suspicious when I knew that the secret operations team was in the field collecting intelligence. Uh, that I thought, I wonder if something's gone wrong at the secret level. And that's what had got wrong, and that's why the rescue mission was cancelled. And the second point, uh, you said you were able to meet two of the survivors from Sandarkin? Yes, we had six out of the 2,000, almost 500. Uh, by the time I became very interested in this story, there were three left alive, and I met two of them and became very friendly with them, and then I met the third one. But um, when I, by the time I met them, they'd been, they were fed up with talking to journalists who didn't know the story and were using them as a source, so they were very gun-shy of talking to anybody. And um, I sat, I knew the story, I knew it backwards by this stage, and sat down and, and they realised, well, Keith Bottrell in particular, the first one, realised that I knew a huge amount of what he'd been doing. And after I talked to him for about an hour, the first time he said, do you know, you're the first person I've ever talked to who knows what I'm actually talking about. And from then on we became very good friends and he would talk to me as if I'd been in the prisoner of war camp with him. He would actually have a conversation, hey Lynette, remember the day something happened? And uh, as he got uh, towards death, he had uh, terminal emphysema, he became more um, forth forthcoming. He admitted to things he'd never spoken about before and um, in the end, basically, um, I was able to get information that people hadn't been able to get for years and years, purely, purely because um, we just had this great rapport. It was amazing. How did you find that, hearing these details that nobody else had heard before? Was it a heavy load on you? Or um, no, because I was fairly practised by this stage. I mean, when I started to, to get into Second World War and war crimes, particularly with Remau, where uh, 10, 10 of them were beheaded and 23 others came to terrible ends, and uh, you're reading Japanese confessions and some of the stuff's pretty torrid. Um, at that time, there was a very awful murder trial going on in Sydney, the murder of a girl called Anita Cobby, who'd been terribly killed in a terrible way. And that was all over the papers. And the details were so bad that when you read it, I think how I thought to myself, now that judge has to sit in that court every day and listen to this prosecution evidence. He can't let himself get involved. He can't get emotionally involved. You just got to listen for the evidence. So I taught myself when I was doing this sort of work to only listen or read for the facts. And you've got to be, keep yourself totally dispassionate because the stories of, that I deal with are so bad that the facts speak for themselves. You don't need to use emotive language. You don't need to use the word barbaric or disgraceful or anything. You just tell it like it is. And I train myself to do that. And I, I can I can read this stuff now and I can actually talk about it. And, you know, really awful war crimes. And uh, it doesn't have any emotional effect on me at all. You are a recognised expert in identifying previously unidentified graves of servicemen. Can you describe this process? 
Yes. Um, it's a matter of matching documentation. I don't physically go and dig people up. But what happened, particularly over in Borneo, was that um, people on the march, in particular, um, went along and the Japanese kept track of where they died. I know this sounds incredible, but it's true. Because although they didn't care if the prisoners of war died, they were accountable for them. So if you set, set out with a group of 50 and you arrive with 35 at the other end, somebody's going to be asking where they are. So the easiest way to do it is actually to note down where they died, the time they died and what they died of. Now, if they, they had malaria and couldn't go any further and someone put a bullet through their head, they didn't record that, they wrote malaria as the cause of death. So you have a whole set of Japanese um, documents that I found which show where people, individuals died. On the other hand, like one to two years later, we have a war graves recovery teams coming in from Australia, going into um, exhumed bodies that have been buried in a POW cemetery or looking for the remains that are scattered all the way along the death march. Might be right beside the track, might be 100 metres away because they've wandered into the bush to die. So three searches went on along the death march track, the full length of it. And eventually they went out to um, 100 metres either side. And, and when they found somebody, they would record where the body was found. Now, when you have a match, what you do is you, you go along and you find out that somebody died at, I don't know, let's say, 11 miles from Rana. That's the end of the journey. 11 miles from Rana is where Quayley, Alan Quayley died, a boy from Redfern, a very tough sort of guy. And that's why the Redfern RSL have just sent us a cheque for $9,000 for the Scholarship Trust. They give us a lot of money in memory of Alan Quayley. Now, Quayley died um, 11 miles along the track from Renau, and the Japanese wrote that down and with his date of death. And then when I went into the recovery teams, and um, then they got volumes and volumes, you can imagine huge amounts of records, um, follow that through, and every time they found a set of remains, they made out a little card, which I discovered in archives. Nobody knew they existed till I actually found them. 22,000 22, cards, originally. And I went through those, and on that card it records where this particular unknown soldier or remains was found. So they record down where it is, and there it was, 11 miles from Ranau, one mile from Nullapak. And so now I had somebody I knew who died there, and somebody, a body I died there. But were they the only two? And this is where the hard start comes in. You need to go through every one of 2,200 uh, pieces of paper relating to the Sandakan deaths, that's 2,200 unknown people, people unidentified. You need to go through every one of those that the Wargraves recovery people found and then you need to go through every single one of the 2,500 names which the Japanese had to show the place of death. And if you get Japanese saying that one person died 11 miles from Renau and one body's found at that particular spot, then you have a match. And then that's all got to be submitted to the Commonwealth War Graves Commission and they've got to be convinced that this has to be that soldier. So I think I've done about 42 so far. But it only works if um, somebody died in a particular place. I can't do it for the cemeteries because they're all just muddled up together. It's got to be a specific place, a specific river crossing, um, particular mile spot in a particular bomb crater near an airfield that they know someone was buried and one body's found there and that's how you do it. No, no, there's nothing, nothing to identify them. 
So there's no particular identification that stands out? Or? Oh yes, the first one I ever did was with a fellow called Richard Murray. He was a great friend of Keith Bottrell and the two of them had made it on the first death march. They'd reached Ranau and they realised that with people dying like flies, which they were, and the numbers getting uh, every day, 10, 12 dying, that unless they escaped, they'd go the same way as everybody else, uh, through dysentery mostly. Um, and they found a Japanese store, and they, the four of them, uh, broke into it and got some food, um, rice, and some ship's biscuits, which were like hard tack. They were in little calico bags. Um, they gave some of the rice to the sick, who were in the camp, and they hid some of it out in the jungle. And in order to carry it, Richard Murray kept the calico bag that the ship's tack biscuits had come in, so they'd have something to carry this rice in when they escaped. He hid it under the POW hut. Now, it was only about a metre off the floor, so for reasons we will never know, one of the guards one day, while they were waiting for their time to escape, bent down, looked underneath and saw this calico bag, hauled it out with his bayonet, realised it was Japanese issue, went to the rice store, realised they had been robbed, and then lined up about 30 prisoners who were still alive from the first march. Now, 455 went on the first march, about 30 still alive at this stage. Two lines rounding and ra raving and wag wagging swords, swords around and demanding that the uh, guilty party own up. And Keith was standing in the second row and his friend Murray was in front of him. There were four involved, as I said, and Keith's whispering along the line, don't say anything, they can't kill us all. But Murray was older, he was 28, and uh, he realised that the Japanese were perfectly capable of killing everybody. So he took one step forward and he said, I stole the food and I gave it to everybody, and after that, Japanese took him away and beat him up. And then about an hour or so later, um, took him down and bayoneted him to death and threw his body into a bomb crater. Um, he was buried, therefore, outside the camp in a bomb crater, and that information was not known. Keith Bottrell, his friend, looked for the body. He knew he'd been taken away, couldn't find him. And it wasn't till 1946 in Rabaul, where there were war crimes trials being held, that um, the investigating officers on our side revealed that they put a stool, Japanese stool pigeon in with suspects in a cell. And the stool pigeon had reported that Private Murray had been bayoneted to death and his body had been thrown in a bomb crater. Now, they had the confession, but they didn't go after the culprit because they had him on another capital charge. And they wanted to protect the identity of the stool pigeon, who was very handy for getting information. So nobody ever went over after the people who murdered Murray and it wasn't until Bottrell told me this story towards the end of his life about his friend. And I said, where do you think he is? He said, I suppose he's still in the jungle. And then months and months and months later, when I was going through these little cards and the Walgrave's recovery stuff, there I found, recovered, ran our map reference, one body, bomb crater. And I thought, well, is this, is this the bomb crater? <laughs> and uh, fortunately, I was able to get the original map they'd used, the wartime map, and do the coordinates and found that the coordinates matched exactly on the side of the hill where the bomb crater had been, where he'd been put. And that was the first match that we had. So that was Murray. Wow, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. That's um, when I realised how it could be done. I thought, well, if I can do it for him, I can do it for perhaps some of the others. So that's when I started to sift through. I'd only found one the other day. Um, I was going through and he's gone off and he's been considered now for a headstone. He, in the cemetery. Oh, what I have to do after that is, once I find out that I've got the match, I then have to trace that particular set of remains. So when they find an unidentified person, they give them a one-off serial number. A bit like on your TV set, right? Or your car. 
and that those remains are then kept track of to a holding cemetery. So you know where the body's gone to the holding cemetery. When that exhumation takes place to go to the Commonwealth War Grave Cemetery, all the paperwork is chased. And it was only the discovery that this information was kept back in 1997. I discovered the information existed. No one else knew about anything about it at that stage. Um, archives, uh, I had a carte blanche from people to look at anything I wanted to look at and the head of archives sent me a message to say, we've got 22 boxes of material here and we don't know what it is. But you might know when you come. So I went in and what it was was all the little cards on every single Australian who died in the Second World War. Wow. Boxes and boxes of them. And what I had to do then was sort out, I think it was what, 30, 30 I got 39,000 down to 22,000, which was far east, then the 22,000 got down to 2,200, which was just Borneo. Once I, once I got to that level, it was easier. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine it would be a bit easier now uh, getting the cards down. I'm going to embarrass you for a minute here because we're going to move on now to some of the uh, sort of charity work that you do. But first, um, you've received many awards, including these are the ones I, I read about. Uh, in 2003, the only civilian to receive the Defence Force Commendation and Medal from Special Operations Command Australia. In 2004, a Medal of the Order of Australia. 2009, the Minister's Special Award from the Sabah Government. And in 2019, a Member of the Order of Australia. Is there one that stands out above the others? Well, because no one else, as far as I know, has still got one who's civilian, uh, the one from Special Operations Command would have to be the, the unique one. And when I wear it, it's a silver level, there's three levels, bronze, silver and gold. When I wear it um, to a special function, the military bods come in and home in on this thing I'm wearing, saying, where did you get that? Why are you wearing, Why are you wearing that? <laughs> and I say, well... Are they, are they suggesting you might have found it on eBay or something? Oh, I don't know. They're very <laughs> suspicious, you know. A female of my age wearing a Defence Force commendation medal. <laughs> and I said, well, it was given to me by Major General Duncan Lewis, who is now head of ASIO. And at the time, he was head of Special Operations Command. And I got it with a big citation for my research work. So I think that's probably the one that's a bit special. The others, of course, are all special in their own way because they're for different things. Absolutely. But, but that one, I think, yeah, that's the one. Fantastic. Neil, you, all, you have also received an Order of Australia medal for your work in the various projects which you two have originated. Can you please outline um, um, how you two um, be began the Santa Khan Memorial Scholarship Trust? Yeah, well, Gus, um, we're just finished putting in the, the, the windows, the stained glass windows in St, Mi in St Michael's Anglican Church in Santa Khan. And we had some, because we budgeted very well and we had some very generous donations, we had some money left over. And we're speaking to the, the uh, priest over there, um, Archdeacon Moses Chin, and um, he mentioned the fact that the church were starting, thinking to start bringing in some uh, very smart and uh, impoverished girls who come from very poor families into the into Sundakan to uh, put them into a hostel and so they could continue their education from primary through secondary and possibly through then into tertiary and, and, and do and a career. Otherwise, because they live in such a remote place, in such remote places, their education would stop when they got to primary primary level. Mm. And they would remain in the in the in the uh, village, Kampong, and, um, and just uh, never be educated beyond that point. And he said, uh, you know, now that you've finished the windows, perhaps there's an opportunity if you'd like to help us out with. 
the, uh, this this project that we that we're starting uh, with the, with the hostel. Well, we looked at the windows and considered that uh, although they're very nice, they don't actually do anything for anybody, and it would be nice to give back to the people of Sabah the, the kindness that they um, gave our soldiers when they were able to during the Second World War. So, on the condition that uh, the the girls that we that it is all, and it is only girls. There's a, a photograph of the of the hostel that they stay in. It's it's only one one hostel, so you can't have boys and girls staying in a hostel that size. So we decided it was only only girls staying in the host in the hostel, um, providing they were Caterson Dusen from the Caterson Dusen uh, background, which were the people who basically helped our soldiers. They were Christian. Uh, then we would be very delighted to you know, to subsidise as bit, the best we could this project that they were considering starting over there. Um, we did that basically the first two or three years by Lynette is invited to, to speak at dinners, uh, after dinner speaker at dinners and lunches and those sorts of things. So we used to, she used to, we used to go along to those and Lynette would do her talk to Rotary and to Probus and all those sort of places. And we'd leave a little wishing bag, what we call a wishing bag at the back and we'd invite people. We would never charge a fee, we'd never ask for any speaking for anything like that. We'd ask people to make a contribution into the wishing bag, perhaps equivalent to a good cup of coffee or a glass of wine or a bottle of wine, something like that, just to create, just to get some money. Well, people were very, we found people were very generous. They gave far more than just the value of those items I just mentioned. And we were able to, for the first two or three years, Make a considerable contribution towards the towards the the trust to, to, well, to, towards this program, and then it really gained it gained a lot of momentum. And uh, as I showed you when I first came in, I just received a cheque for nine thousand dollars from an RSL club in Sydney. Uh, that particular club had one of one of its soldiers die as a prisoner of war mm. inside the gun, and that they, that's why they have this interest in it. And so we now have accumulated. Quite, a, quite an amount of money, such that providing interest rates <laughs> get a little bit more. Provi providing interest rates rise a little bit, uh, we have enough money to continue our, our commitment to this trust for these 11, uh, 14 girls at the moment, which are in this uh, hostel in, uh, in, in Santa Khan. We, we can educate them up to secondary level uh, for quite a lot, quite a number of years, mm. even if there even, even if there were no more donations like this generous nine thousand dollars here, we could still do it from the income that we, we now generate from the investment we've got. So we've gone from nothing, zero, and just meeting our, our obligations yeah. by Lynette doing talks, through to having uh, accumulated investment, which we can the interest from which meets our objective, and we actually provide more than one third of their operating costs on a yearly basis. And we have done since. About 2005. Yeah, about, well, yeah, it's coming up to 15 years. Can you tell us about a few of the other projects you have developed, such as Biosmile, and in particular, the story of Des Moines and the Friends of Maruru Village project? Well, the Biosmile is, is, is my baby, so I'll talk about that one. You, you can, I'll, I'll, because my voice is going, I can talk about Maruru Village. But uh, Biosmile is, when we were walking through the jungle one day, uh, as we always do on these death marches, we found, uh, come across a little village and maybe 10 or 10 little kids came running out. And our, our group of trekkers always has some sweets and some koalas and kangaroos and things to hand out the kids. And I noticed at the back of this group there was a little girl and she wasn't joining the group, wasn't coming, wasn't coming forward and getting her, her, her present. And 
obviously we would have given her one before, someone would have given her one before we left, but we went through the village and two or three months later we came back with another group and sure enough we came to this village and out came all the little kids again because they were knew, knew what to expect and so the, the koalas and the kangaroos all came out along with the sweets and again I noticed this poor little girl at the back of the group not, not participating so curiosity got the better of me then I thought well I'll go and talk to this little girl and when I got close to her I found that she had a very very bad cleft lip and cleft palate and she was really a, a lovely beautiful little girl but she was terribly deformed and ugly by the by this de by this by this and I couldn't really work out she was probably eight or nine years of age and I couldn't reconcile in my head why someone hadn't done something about <coughs> done something about it by that stage <coughs> it took me quite a while after that trek to find out why and one of the reasons is that she wasn't a Malaysian lady it wasn't a Malaysian girl and because she didn't have an IC what's called an IC which is identity certificate she couldn't access the Malaysian medical system and could therefore couldn't have it done her parents were subsistence people they, they were working for an oil palm plantation um, they were their income was such that if they provided rice and, and and dried fish for dinner, that would be the end of their income. So they had no way of ever saving in their lifetime enough money to have this little girl operated on. So then I decided, well, that wasn't good enough. We had to find out a way to do that. In the meantime, <coughs> before I did that, I found out I found a surgeon, a plastic surgeon, <coughs> who was connected to a rotary club in, in Kota Kinabalu. And I found out for about 6,000 ringgits or 2,000 Australian dollars, we could have this little bill fixed. So I just, we learned, and I paid for that, just had it done. And uh, the word spread around from that. There was other, other little children that sort of heard about this in the, in the various kampongs and villages. And suddenly there was another two, another two, another three, another four, another five uh, little, little girls and little boys who had the same problem. And to cut a long story short, we've, we've got a lot of very good friends who have provided a lot of donations over the three or four years that we've been doing this and now 40, just over 40 little children have, um, have had that operation which they would otherwise not have had. So that's, that's, my, that's my baby. Um, and Lynette, can you tell us about the story of Des Moines and the Friends of Maruru Village project? Yes, um, Maruru Village is quite a remote little village off the Death March track actually in another va valley and uh, we went down there one day just to talked to people and discovered an elderly man called Domoit who was interesting because he had six toes on each foot. And he told us that during the time of the death marches he had been forced to be a runner for the Japanese. He said one of the reasons he was so good running in the mud was because he had the extra toe for stability. But anyway, he ran many, many miles carrying messages to the Japanese up and down the death march track. And he told us that one day when the second march was going along, um, at a crossing of a place called Kaporan, that he came across two Japanese standing over the body of an Australian POW they just shot. And they were about to kill the second one. Um, the second one took off, took advantage of this, and took off into the jungle. The Japanese didn't follow him because along that stretch of particular track, there were local youths that had come from this, um, this valley who had penetrated that area, which was uninhabited, unexplored, and they were blowpipe warriors with poison blow darts. And they had been terrorising the Japanese along this stretch with their little blow guns going, <coughs> bumping them off. You've got about 15 minutes to live when it penetrates your 
body. And consequently, the Japanese were very worried about following anybody into the jungle because they didn't have the faintest idea who might be lurking. So they didn't bother to search for this fellow that ran off. They kept on their way. Well, Domoit is like our Australian Aboriginals. Um, the Doosan people are the local tribes people. And he didn't have much trouble locating this prisoner of war. He then took him by the jungle trails over the mountain into his little village of Miruru. And once they got there, the people there fed him and clothed him, built him a little shelter in the jungle and hid him from the Japanese until such time as Domoit and his brother could put him on a raft and float him down the river to another headman who'd also harboured some prisoners of war. Unfortunately, our prisoner of war didn't survive, but the thing was that this entire village took this massive risk because the Japanese had made it perfectly clear that any village that was harbouring escaped prisoners you would, they would put, put them all to the sword. They would kill everybody. Old people, babies, the works. So these people took this massive risk to do this and um, because they were a long way away from the death march track, after the war nobody knew what Domoids had done or what the village people had done until I found out by accident. So we, this village was very, very poor and uh, I came back and told the Australian government about Domoids and they sent a representative across with a special plaque and a medallion and a letter of appreciation from the Australian government to recognise the contribution that he and the village people had made all those years ago. And it was the the very poor condition of the village that started us off. We, we, we bought the first few bags of rice and a few things they needed. And then I came back home and told people about Domoit and then people got interested and they said, oh, well, well we're happy to help out. And so we bought them musical instruments and all sorts of things. They needed a wheelchair for people disabled, lots of stuff. And then uh, one day we were there and they took us to see the, the village preschool. Now this was basically under a house. Um, I think it was probably a concrete... One room, under one room under a house. Where they had like sticky vinyl was on the floor, that was it. And there were about eight or nine little children sitting around a table which had made been made from offcuts of river... Uh, bits of timber floating down the nearby river which had been collected. So they'd all been banged together. So some bits were, you know, a metre long, some bits were 30 centimetres. So and so it was hopeless to write on because it was all uneven. So this was the only table they had and they had some lead, lead pencils. They sat on the floor, lead pencils and some old computer paper and that was the preschool. They had two, two ladies there willing to teach the children songs but that's all they had. So uh, we, uh, we talked to the head man and um, he said that um, they didn't have enough money, the village was too poor and no government help. And so then we asked if, the, if we provided the um, materials, because the, the village people build their own houses, could they build their own preschool? So we came back home and the preschool project was born. And uh, they all, we supplied the money and uh, when we went back they built a very large, lovely large hall with um, toilet facility and little kitchen. and fully equipped with um, flat-screen TV and tables and chairs and fridges and stuff on the walls. And we had the most wonderful grand opening. We took some Australians who were trekking with us down there. One of them was, uh, had taken his bagpipes along and it was the first time the village had seen bagpipes. And we got down there and they, had, they were playing gongs, which is a very big honour. If you arrive and gongs are being played, that's like your very important visitors. And the kids all learnt to dance and the village had this great party. We cut the ribbon and Maruru Preschool was open. So um, that's, that's still ongoing. We're still supporting the preschool. But that just came from the fact that Domoit, as a young man, had 
saved the life of this prisoner of war, and then that the whole village, instead of, instead of saying to him, get rid of him, he's a danger to us, the whole village agreed that they would support this fellow and try to keep him alive. And, you know, it's a huge ask. They had no affiliation with us. Sabah was under British government, not Australian government. Oh, yes, last August we left about $300 for them to buy some new toys and things for the children and, uh, and to have the floor redone and recovering. So that's been up since about, oh, about five, six, well, I don't know, eight, nine years now. It's been a while. So, Lynette, I did read that you actually found the lost uh, Sandarkin track. Is that correct? Uh, well, I'd, let's, let's start at the beginning. Um, I was over there in 2005 and... Uh, met a group of people who had walked from Sandakan to run out, mainly along the road as sort of a commemorative event. And I, looked, I let, met the fellow um, who was organising it for them, Tam Yao Kong, Chinese uh, a trekker, very, very well known over there, and um, said to him, you know, walking along the road, that's terrible. I said, you know, if, if we could open up part of the track which is not affected by all palm plantations or modern-day development, which was the middle section across the mountains, it's very remote, um, maybe we could encourage young Australians to come across for an adventure and they would then learn their history by default. We'll lure them in for the adventure yeah. and then we'll teach them the history. And he said, oh, that's a wonderful idea, but nobody knows where the track went. And I said, well, I do. I've got the map. Now, back in 1992, so I met somebody who had been with the Wargraves group and he was charged with drawing what we would call today a mud map. I don't know if you know what a mud map is. It's a map you draw on, the, draw on a piece of paper or on the dirt with a stick to show somebody how to get from point A to point B. The cadets all still do yeah, mud right. maps as you part know, of their instructions. Right. You know then that if you take your mud map and you put it onto a military map, it's going to mean nothing. You can't transpose it. You can't. It's out, it's out to blazes in latitude and longitude and it's out of scale but if you f start from point A and you go along and cross a certain river and turn left at a, some other landmark you can find your way to where you need to go. Well that's what this map was used for because they followed the river systems and uh, they put them all in and they put in the names of all the tributaries so basically I couldn't do it from here but I said to Tom you'll need to need, need to go in on the ground and find the start point on this and follow it. So he rounded up a group of um, Doosan uh, jungle experts, uh, mountain guides who are also can live, they can actually live in the jungle, they're so skilled. And he went in with them, there were four of them, and he went in for four months from where he lived in Kota Kinabali, which is a city, and they drove up into the mountains and they, they started to follow and they would find farmers who would help them out by for instance, on the map, it would say that there was a, a Japanese ammunition dump, and they would go to that particular spot, the confluence of two rivers, and ask to own the land. And they find the farmer and say, "Oh, I don't use that land because I set fire to it to clear it, and all this bangs went off." <laughs> right. So, so bit by bit, we it's a bit like being a history detective on the ground. Bit by bit, Tan found local people who'd had to carry ammunition for the Japanese. He found one of the blowpipe warriors who'd been bumping them off on this particular stretch, and. Those people, there were five of them all together, with the map and all this information, we were able to put together what we call the lost section because there was a section of the Death March track that was especially cut that linked two existing trails. So the trail at the far end was always there. Part of the trail from the Sandakan end was always there. It was the bit from mile 42 onwards that had to be cut. So... Um, we put it together and in 2006 um, Australian military came down from 
Malaya or Malaysia now, West Malaysia, and they opened up the track with soldiers. The Australian government said it was fitting that the military be the first to walk across this reopened track. So, with us, with us, yeah, we went. Fantastic. Is it now protected from further development, those sorts of things? Well, or? the bits that go, well, fortunately, we've got very good, the forestry people are very good. The forestry over there fights a slight kind of losing battle against development, whereby um, vested interests and, you know, you've got, when you get corruption, things happen that shouldn't. You get vested interests who want to log forests that shouldn't be logged. Well, the forestry's got on side, and uh, when they found out that... Um, the track went through three of their forestry reserves. That gave us extra clout to preserve that forest as well as from what grows there, the actual historical significance. So they've come on board and that, that will always be fine through the three forestry areas. Um, the bits that go through um, what we call Kampong land or village land, um, that depends on the whim of the village and you know whether they want a development. And sometimes we'll walk through rice paddies, and the next time we'll go there, it'll be all overgrown with weeds. And so we never quite know from one walk to the next what's going on in the Kampong land. But yes, it's uh, the bit we've preserved should remain. The 95 kilometres we walk out of the 250 uh, should remain pretty much intact uh, for quite a long time to come. Fantastic. Mm. Um, how did your association with bike come about? Uh, that was after the first um, <coughs> windows had been opened in April that year. This is 2005. And I was invited to come along to speak to the cadets on their Remembrance Day about Sundercar. Who, who gave you the invite? Who did uh, Danny. You? Danny O'Keefe. Yes. Okay, a former head of the cadet unit. Yes, and, and um, came along. And he asked me to speak there because at that stage, three old, they knew three that some of the Barker boys had died there. I didn't know anything about who they were. So I came along and gave the talk, and we had a morning tea, and Rod Kefford I'd known, who was headmaster, I'd known Rod Kefford since he was nine years old, because he was the younger, pesty brother of a friend of mine who went to school with. <laughs> I hadn't seen him since I was about 12 years old, so he knew who I was. And um, I showed him that I took along uh, very big um, reproductions of the windows, how they looked, and Rod famously said to me, oh, he said, if only we'd known that you were raising money for these windows. We had three, because they thought it was three at that stage, it's actually four, three Barker boys who died over there, and we could have made a substantial donation. And I said, have I got news for you? This is only stage one. We're about to do stage two, which is the north and south transept windows, which are going to be called the friendship windows. And they're there to honour the friendship between the local people and the Australians. And um, I said, um, if your donation was sizeable enough, I might be able to arrange to have the names of your old boys put on a little bronze plaque under one of the windows. And he said, how much is this going to cost me? And I said, $12,000 has a very good ring to it. And he said, done. <laughs> done. So Barker handed over the $12,000. We'd already had money left over from the first project and we had some other endowments given to us, so we actually had enough money to then straight away do the second one. And um, when the windows were to be opened, um, Rod Kefford and his wife and Danny and a whole stack of cadets came across and they attended the service and um, two of the cadets uh, did the unveiling of their particular window underneath and that's how it all began. But it began with a retiring offertory, uh, the scholarship trust began, began with a retiring offertory 
on that first Remembrance Day service I spoke at in 2005. And um, Danny suggested that we'd have a retiring off of a tree and we just started off the scholarship trust. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, we do have, we, we really do need some money for that. And that's how it started. So the association was back in 2005 and it grew with the windows in 2008 and it's been going on ever since. And how did the visit to Barker College by three of the scholarship students come about? Well, we really could we, we, we noted this down, and our private thought was we really couldn't imagine anybody from Barker actually being able to go and exchange program over there because you know, it's pretty basic. Yeah, no issue, no boy, no boys for a start, but it might be possible to bring some girls out. So um, Rod was very keen to do it, and uh, we floated it with the um, then church people, and they basically said, oh. Not at this stage. It's hard enough getting the parents to agree to let these girls come in from these remote villages to Sundakar, right, just to town, without leaving them out of their sight to go overseas. Anyway, we, because that was that was early on, so it took us about what, six, seven years. Um, the girls all got to know us. They go home and talk about their parents. They call us Datuk and Nenek, which is grandma and grandpa in in Dusan language, that we've been to visit and we got to know them very well and people then realised that they saw these girls going through this program, they saw them going off to university, they saw them graduating in things like biotechnics in a degree in that, yep. for a girl that's come from a remote village it's amazing. that would have never had any education. And gradually the, um, the confidence of the, the parents. And so um, we then had three whose English was good enough and who... Uh, were outgoing enough and in the final year to be invited to come out to Barker and they spent three weeks here as boarders, uh, which was huge. They had never left Sandaka. They had never seen a high-rise building. They had never seen a bathtub where hot and cold water came out. They'd ne never been in an aeroplane, never seen TVs in the back of the seats. And um, opera, so we took them to yes, we took them to the opera house, and um, a friend of ours paid for them to see the Nutcracker, the ballet. So and they had wonderful experiences here, and they lived up in the boarding house, and they had a wonderful time here. Everyone looked after them, and uh, it was a most amazing experience. We wanted them to see that there were opportunities outside their own little limited world, and that if if they if they studied hard, these opportunities would be open up to them to see a bigger world. And it was, a, a, we might, I don't know if we'll be able to do it ever again because you know, you've got to have the right sort of kids to be able to come along. But it was a very good experience for everybody. The Barker people, um, they, they really, I think the girls that they were in the, um, in the boarding house really, really couldn't fathom that somebody had come from such you know, basic living conditions. Yeah. And um, and the girls sort of eyes were as big as saucers. <laughs> it was very it was very very good. Yeah. Um. Do you keep track of the scholarship recipients after they finish? Like, are there some that stick in your mind? Well, we've been. It's quite hard because they once they go off, they disappear to various universities. But yes, we do try to keep track of some of them, and uh, we know that of the three girls that came out here to Barker. Susie has some uh, is working with um, Malaysian Telecom, and apparently it must be some quite good job because she's having to really knuckle down and do it. Um, Genevia is still doing her um, pharmacy studies, and Agnes is doing aquaculture. And she's a final exam on Sunday. Wow! She'll be finished. 
So they're the three that came out to visit Embark, and they're doing very well. And the biotechnics girl, I don't know where she's working, but yes, we do keep track of them. One, another one, who they're, they're very funny. These girls, they when we go over, we ask them what every time we see them, what what do you want to do when you leave school? And this particular one was going to be a policeman, then police lady, then she's going to be a teacher, then she's going to be a model, <laughs> and now she's doing electrical engineering. Wow! So work that one out. It's a bit of a change of direction. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> So she, she's down at Kuching, down there at a, a university down there. She's gone down there for some reason. Yes, we do keep in touch. We try very hard. It's very yeah. Must make you very proud, very happy to see where the work ends up. Oh, yeah, you know, I mean, we get the accolades for this. We get the kudos. We're the two with the gongs. But I say to everybody, we're the ones that make it happen, but we're supported by this huge... I call it my silent army. The silent army are the people who receive my Borneo newsletter, about 1,200 people. And they're the, they're the relatives of the prisoners of war who are tremendously um, uh, generous and people who've been trekking with us. And, for instance, uh, when there was an earthquake over there in 2015, we were actually there when it happened, right there. The epicentre was under Mount Kinabalu. And um, our, fortunately, our boys had just, uh, who come with us on the treks, they'd just gone back to the village and they were fortunately there, not on the mountain, because 18 people were killed. On the mountain, um, they were back at the village, but ten of their houses were either totally destroyed or very badly damaged. Now, no good whistling for help over in Sabah from anybody, right? You've got to do it yourself. A bit like it used to be out here in Australia in the outback, you know, something went wrong, you had to look after yourself. And uh, we found out that uh, they had the they had the energy to rebuild their houses, but not the money because no one had any insurance. So I sent out a special newsletter called an Earthquake Edition saying, right, you know, these are the decent people that um, looked after our prisoners of war, saved their lives of the six, and risked their lives to help many others on the track. Um, you know, they're down and out. We, they really need some help. All we need is money. The money just poured in, and there was sufficient money for all those houses to be rebuilt to a much higher standard than before, stronger standard than before. And... Uh, at the end of it, we three be repaired. At the end of it, we had money left over, and we thought well, it would be good to do something for the village. And so we asked the headman. He said, "Oh, he said, what we really need is we need some toilets at the end of the road coming up to village. village. Now, village the village is on the very, very steep sided, right? I mean, you've got to be like a mountain goat, and the road only goes certain. It's very steep, goes certain way. And then you've got to keep on walking. It's sort of you know, it's like being in the Swiss Alps. So they're actually on the side of Mount Kinabalu." It's very. It's about four, five thousand, six thousand feet, wherever it is. It's cold there in the winter. Uh, in, in not the winter, in the rainy season, it rains a lot. And um, that there's a bus that comes to collect the kids to take them down the mountain to the school. And, and these little kids have to walk down from the mountain, and they're only small, and they get to wait for the bus, and they're jumping around because they get caught short. Right? There's nowhere to go. Mm. And so the village asked, could we build some toilets? <laughs> So we did, and they're proper septic toilets with, you know, all tiled and two, two in there, and it's all beautifully done with very nice detailing. And the head man contacted us and said we'd like to put, your, we like to call it the Neil Silver Toilets. <laughs> and I said, oh, I don't think Neil Silver Toilets are a very good name. I said, and I thought about it, I said to Neil, oh, I've got the perfect name, and it's called The Dunny. <laughs> the Dunny, it's called. A, a, the dunny, a gift from Australian friends. And they said, what's a dunny? I said, it's an Australian word for a toilet outside. So they built all this. The head man had been very uh, judicious with his contracting to the subcontractors and he had, we had some more money left over. 
So um, what else do you need? Oh, well, at the other end, down the school bus stop, the kids have got to stand out in the pouring rain waiting for the bus, you know, oh, without this shelter. Heat. And the poor, the poor broiling heat. They got to, We really do need some sort of shelter. We've been asking the government. Nobody's helped us, you know. There is supposed to be a government program, but this village is just too yeah, off the track. Never going to happen. <laughs> never, never. So um, we got the quotes, and um, the, as, soon as, we, as soon as we sent the money, oh, well, they went off and got all the materials and had a working bee. And now this bus shell has been built. And he said, what do you want to call this one? I said, we're going to call this one the Ganya, which is the Aboriginal word for shelter. So this is the Ganya, a gift from Australia. Oh, nice. <laughs> so, so now the whole village now calls it the Dunny. And the, the Dunny is very useful because anybody who happens to be at a part of the village can go and use it. And they also have um, tourists are coming from overseas that go off to a jungle survival course, and that's as far as they can go in the little minibus. And they're always needing to go from the long ride in the bus. Yep. So the dummy gets plenty of use. <laughs> okay, so today you've told us a lot about your wonderful activities with the trusts and the projects, but you also operate um, tours along the track. Uh, mm -hmm. as well as um, organising ANZAC services at um, Sandarkin. Yep. If people want to donate or get involved in any of the initiatives, how would they do this? Just just to go on my website, just Google LynetteSilver.com yep. and there's a lot of information on there. There's information about all the projects, the community projects, investigations, all the books I've done. There's a lot of information on special operations plus a whole section on Sandakan, which tell uh, an overview of what it's about and then various things going on, the various stuff that we've done over there. And um, just, then they just contact me and we tell, tell them how to donate. And uh, every single cent that's donated goes to whatever the project whatever is. Whatever the project we, is. We, the two of us, it's our, our contribution is to bear the cost, all the administrative costs, uh, even the stamps on the envelopes yeah. to pay for the receipt. And uh, no money is taken out of any of those projects for any reason at all other than to send the money straight across. And I think that's one reason why we get huge um, support because people are sick of giving to charities where they know that only 20 cents of the mm. dollar actually reaches the recipient. We also keep everybody who's donated up to speed on the newsletter I send out about four times a year, three, four times a year called Borneo News, which has loads of pictures. So when we were doing the Dunny project, we sent <laughs> pictures of the completed Dunny and what was going on, and the people involved, and we sent yep. pictures of the scholarship girls, and uh, when I went to see Domoit, you know, his story. So over the years, everybody's been filled in on the background of all of this, and um, anyone who's energetic can come and do a walk along the Death March for 95 kilometres. People are not energetic, and in what creature comforts they usually come on Anzac Day, which follows the death march, but in an air-conditioned vehicle <laughs> along the road, and they sort of have to point out where things are in the distance. Excellent. Well, we look forward to seeing you both uh, back for the church parade this Sunday, 2019, that is, um, and hopefully we can also raise some reasonable funds for the trust there. We're um, selling some poppies as well, uh, which is great. Thank you so much for coming in to talk to us today, Lynette and Neil Silver. Thank you, and thank you, Barker, and the cadets in particular for very good commitment and very wonderful ongoing support. And I, I'm sure the cadets will appreciate, you know, that all the effort they put in changes people's lives forever. It's not very often, as an individual, you get a chance to change somebody's life. But all these people in all these projects, particularly the Healy Project and the, the Girls' Scholarship, 
It's changing their life beyond any dream. There's no way they could ever achieve this without a little bit of a helping hand. Yep. And uh, that's something I think the cadets and Barker in particular should be very proud of, and we thank you very much on behalf of those recipients. You're welcome. It's our honour. Thank you very much. Thank you.